Hi, my name is David Lopez, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Newark, New Jersey, and this is The Power of Attorney. Today we're going to focus on our criminal justice system and specifically a case that involved one of our clinics. With us today is Hugh Burton, who was recently exonerated by a Bronx judge for a crime he did not commit. Mr. Burton, welcome. Thank you. A large part of that exoneration was due to the work of the Rutgers Criminal and Youth Justice Clinic and Professor Laura Cohen. Laura, it's nice to have you here. So nice to be here, David. Thank you. And so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the work that you've done um, more broadly at Rutgers Law School and about your background, about your clinic. Uh, but I want to jump into the case. So why don't you start out by just telling us um, a little bit about the case and how you got involved with the case. In 1989, Hugh Burton was a 16-year-old boy living in the Bronx with his mother and father and came home from school one day to find his mother murdered in the apartment. And although the police initially treated him like a victim, very quickly, within 24 hours, their attention turned to him unjustly and unfairly as a suspect. And within hours after that, they had extracted a false confession from him and charged him with the murder. Hugh ultimately was convicted and sentenced to a term of 15 years to life in prison. And throughout the time of his trial and in the long and really unimaginably difficult years that followed, he sought to establish his innocence. And that journey eventually led him to our clinic and our really great gift of having Hugh as a client. Do you, do you want to talk generally about what your clinic does? Sure. Um, the Criminal and Youth Justice Clinic provides legal representation to youth who are incarcerated in New Jersey's juvenile prisons, to people who were convicted of really serious offenses, usually homicides, when they were adolescents and are seeking some form of post-conviction relief. So that could be, as it was in Hugh's case, um, an exoneration, or it could be parole, release on parole, or it could be executive clemency, and the clinic has been involved in all of those types of matters over the years. We provide direct representation to clients charged with minor criminal offenses in a court in Newark, and then we do a lot of um, appellate advocacy in the New Jersey Supreme Court primarily, a lot of policy advocacy. The work of the clinic has led to really major reforms of the youth justice system in the state. That's wonderful. When did the clinic get involved in this case? The clinic became involved in this case on a memorable afternoon in 2009, I think, or maybe 2008, when I received a call from Professor Stephen Drizzen, who teaches at Northwestern Law School. At the time, he had just launched the Center for Wrongful Convictions of Youth at Northwestern, and he and I had done a lot of work together in the past. We had represented or co-counseled for several other clients. And Steve called and said, there's this young man who is incarcerated in New York. I think it's a false confession case. Would you like to take this on with me? And I said, of course. So we arranged a telephone call with Hugh, who at that point was still incarcerated. And I think the three of us were on the phone for probably three hours that day. 
and within 30 seconds, it was one of those, you know, you had me at hello moments because within 30 seconds of starting that call, both Steve and I were very sure that we wanted to take Kiwan as a client, and thankfully he agreed to let us represent him. Now, Hugh, um, this is a horribly tragic story that turned out well in the end. Can you tell us a little bit about working with Professor Cohen and the Rutgers Law students? That, for me, that had to be one of the highlights um, of everything that happened to me over the last 30 years, um, mainly because prior to getting this law clinic, um, I was writing people and I didn't know if I was gonna get a response. I just knew I had to just keep writing. And when I finally, I wrote to the Innocence Project and the Innocence Project uh, referred me or referred my letter to the Northwestern Law Clinic. And as Laura just said that, we had got with her after. But working with them gave me so much hope. Um, I felt that we were finally going to get to the bottom of it. It took us 10 years after we initially met each other to um, you know, reverse the conviction. But um, it was one of the highlights of my life. It really was. And, and what do you remember about that first conversation? I left my counselor's office that day feeling that there was hope. Um, you know, I was looking at, I went to parole boards already. Um, I had been denied. And um, that conversation just led me to believe that someone believes me um, and they are going to do whatever they can um, to try to, you know, prove, prove it right. So, um, yeah. And, and during the period of time when you were incarcerated, I would imagine that was a pretty hopeless situation, or were there moments when you felt hope? Did you always have hope? No. No. Um, I mean, you, you continue to press on because it's what you have to do. Um, but through parole denials, um, through appeals not uh, being granted, you kind of have this feeling like, is, this, is it ever going to end? You know you're innocent, but is it going to end? So there are days that are better than others where you really have a, a sense of hope, and then there's other days where you don't feel too sure that it's going to happen. So. No, or this case went on for a very long time, and obviously law school is three years, so um, it sounds like you work with the gener multiple generations of law students. Can you talk about the uh, involvement of the law students in this case and what type of work that they did? The law students in this case were extraordinary, as all of our students are, and vigorous and engaged and enthusiastic and passionate about their work and also absolutely committed to righting this wrong and overturning this conviction. Every single group of students over the years worked closely with Hugh. They all developed their own relationships. I don't want to speak for him, but I think he has continued some of those yeah. friendships to this day. And um, a hefty group showed up for the exoneration hearing. I think we had about 10 or 12 former students there. One of the great things about clinic is that even if cases go on past the end date of a semester, as they almost always do, there is always a new group of students who are coming in, who are enthusiastic, who want to take on the work. And we, we've 
all of the clinicians here figure out how to make that happen in a way that's meaningful and ensures the best educational opportunity and the best lawyering opportunity for the students. So over the course of those 10 years, what the students were doing depended on what was happening in the case at that time. Overall, though, they did a lot of investigation. So one of the things I've heard from the director of one of the other Innocence Projects is that the first thing we have to do when we start working with a new client is give them back their innocence. And what that essentially means is look at the case from a tabula rasa or a blank slate perspective and start investigating and questioning every single thing that happened. And so that's what our students did for the first six or eight years that we were working on the case. They tracked down witnesses. They examined with a fine-tooth comb every single police report, and there were hundreds of them. They poured over the transcripts. They digested the transcripts. They went to the Bronx Supreme Court and studiously photocopied every single page at 25 cents a page, I might add, of these lengthy court records. We tracked down the mother of the person who we think actually killed Mrs. Burton we, in Virginia Beach and interviewed her. We talked to many of Hugh's family members. We found the files of his former lawyer, who was the um, fabulous and important civil rights lawyer, William Kunstler. We tracked down, Mr. with the help of his family, Mr. Kunstler's old files in Hugh's case, and one of our students went to the Kunstler family storage unit in a Brooklyn parking garage and went through decades of William Kunstler's files looking for any piece of paper that had to do with Hugh's case. And then, of course, there was all the legal work that needed to be done. So the research around whether or not we could bring a viable um, petition for post-conviction relief in New York, what the response of the Bronx DAs might be, um, whether legal grounds existed to vacate this conviction, whether we had the requisite newly discovered evidence. And so it was multiple generations, and then within each generation there were multiple types of legal and investigative work that had to be done. Can you talk about the whole process of petitioning for post-conviction relief and some of the legal and factual issues that went into that process? Yes, so in this case, we had the opportunity to be at the cutting edge of what's happening in the innocence world because um, after eight years of really kind of spinning our wheels and not being able to get the Bronx District Attorney's Office to pay attention to the case, there was a new district attorney elected, and one of the first things she did was to create something called a conviction review unit. So this is something that's happening in prosecutor offices all over the country now. And um, the the notion is that um, these prosecutor offices can and should take a good look at claims of wrongful conviction that came out of their offices and evaluate whether or not those claims are valid. New Jersey, by the way, has just established its own conviction review unit. Unlike most of these that exist around the country, this will be a statewide or is a statewide conviction review unit um, stationed in the state attorney general's office. And our clinic already has established a relationship with that 
unit and hopefully we'll have Rutgers students doing some work for, for them as well. But in any event, what happened in this case was that um, rather than having to file a motion to vacate the conviction and facing the potential and in many cases likely um, resistance of the prosecutor office, we, along with the Innocence Project, which agreed to come back into the case in 2016, we presented the case to the Conviction Review Unit almost as soon as they opened their doors. And we did that by writing a lengthy, detailed memo about the case, outlining our um, the bases for our claims of wrongful conviction, what we believed was uh, markers of false uh, of of false of Hughes' confession being false, and um, brought a lot of the other evidence to them. Essentially, pitched it to them, and they agreed to take the case on as one of the first cases that they were going to reinvestigate. And then we entered into essentially a joint reinvestigation agreement with them and their staff, which included a team of lawyers as well as investigators who had come out of the, of the New York City Police Department, um, again, interviewed all of the witnesses who they could identify, looked at all of the records, interviewed Hugh twice at length. We also had the good fortune of bringing one of the country's leading experts on false confessions to them and he gave them essentially a primer on, on how and why false confessions happen. And in the end, the district attorney's office agreed with us that this was a wrongful conviction, that Hugh's confession was false, and that the conviction should be vacated. And so what we, the legal work that we ultimately ended up doing in the papers that we filed in court were joint papers with, with the Bronx district attorney's office. Now, one of the things that I think is really important about the case and has precedential value is that not only did the Bronx District Attorney's Office agree with us that there were indicators of the uh, falseness of this confession just in the facts of the case, but they also agreed that the new science, the, the emerging science around adolescent development and false confessions and why young people are more likely to make false statements, to confess falsely than adults are, constituted newly discovered evidence. That is of enormous value, and I think will have reverberations around the country, because what that means is that when other young people like Hugh have made false statements to the police, they no longer will be required to scour the earth for some piece of new evidence that couldn't have been known at the time of their trial, some piece of factual evidence. They can look to this science and say, this in and of itself is the newly discovered evidence that gives us the, um, the necessary grounds to go back into court and have a court reevaluate this case. Oh, yeah, I want to drill down on the whole um, issue of false confessions, and I also want to talk a little bit more about the uh, post-conviction review unit um, across the country. Uh, but before I do that, I want to um, turn it back to you, Q. Okay. Where were you um, when you found out that the judge had vacated your conviction? Or tell me when you found out that this was a possibility. 
I was sitting in the garage. Okay. Um, straightening up a few things. I was sitting out there for a while, so I was just taking a break. And the phone rings. Mm-hmm. And I forget exactly who I was on the phone with. But um, they said, you have a minute? And they said, we have an update. I said, okay, well, you know, it's, it's been a lot of stop and starts, you know. They said, no, the judges uh, agreed to vacate the uh, conviction. Um, I didn't hear anything after that. I, you know, just, I just sat there, so I just started crying um, because that's what you've been waiting, you know, I've been waiting to hear since I was a teenager that, you know, okay, they finally got it right. Um, again, I don't remember who exactly called me, uh, but I can just remember that feeling. Um, and it just felt like it was a lot of pressure a lot of things were just lifted off me in that moment. I think it was all four of us. I, was, was it I think it was. I think it was I'm the entire sure. legal team. So it was Steve Drizzen, Barry Sheck, and Susan Freeman from the Innocence Project and I. There was no way that we were going to do this except in a group. Yeah. And I think it was a rainy Friday night. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you were out of prison when you received this call? or Yes. Okay. I, had, I had been out almost uh, 10 years at that point. Okay. Um, so that in and of itself, it... it had a different kind of meaning. You know, I wasn't just sitting in prison, but I was out here trying to make a way and, you know, carrying that burden with me um, for the last 10 years. And to hear that, you just knew that, okay, things are really about to be different. Um, but it was just a, a, a hell of a weight that was just lifted off of me. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so, Laura, false confessions. Um, I think people have heard of the Innocence Project, and at its earliest beginnings, it really focused a lot on DNA evidence. But this wasn't a DNA evidence case. This was a case that centered on the false confession. Yes, this was not a DNA case. Um, and the only evidence that the prosecution had against you, truly the only evidence, was this statement that he made to the police two days after he had come home to find his mother killed, after 48 hours of no sleep, after being interrogated for hours in the middle of the night and not having access to to his father or to any other relative or concerned adult, let alone a lawyer. So um, what we have learned about false confessions is number one, they happen and they happen with some degree of frequency. And number two, that youth are particularly vulnerable to making false confessions. And the reason for this is that the interrogation tactics that police use, which are typically known as the Reed method, look for and rely on cues of truth or falsity that are at odds with how young people behave, how they process information, and how they respond to stress. So for example, one of the typical things that will happen in a case involving a false confession, and that typically happens in an interrogation, is that the police set up sort of a false dichotomy for the person who's under interrogation. So they're presented with two choices. They either confess 
in a way that shows them at their absolute worst with no moral grounding, or they're offered an excuse that creates a moral justification for this horrible act to which they are about to confess. The third option, I didn't do it, is not made available to them. Children and adolescents who are at a moment in time when they are developing personally and and grasping for, searching for their moral identity are very vulnerable to being given that false dichotomy and are going to try to grasp at whatever it is that makes them seem like the, the better human being. Um, kids are very vulnerable to peer pressure. A typical thing that happens in interrogations and in false confession cases is that the police will say that someone else, someone they know, has identified them as being involved in whatever this event was. And the police are allowed to lie under the law. And again, young people are very vulnerable to that. We also know that kids are impulsive. That By definition, they're impulsive. Their prefrontal cortex is not completely developed yet. Their executive functioning isn't working. And so they're not making carefully considered decisions. And so again, they are very vulnerable to this aggressive form of, of questioning and interrogation that happens in the, in the police interrogation room. And then the final thing, or one of the other things that happens, is that young people don't have the ability to judge the future impact of their current decisions. And so if the police tell someone, tell a young person, as they often do, if you just tell us what happens, you will go home, or we'll we'll tell the prosecutor to let you go home, they're going to leap at that and grasp at that regardless of what the long-term consequence of making that decision will be because their focus is on the immediate and the now. And so for all these reasons, young people are really, really vulnerable to these, these kinds of interrogation tactics. The rate of false confessions among youth is about two and a half times that of adults. That has been established through a careful examination of DNA exonerations in which there was also a confession. And, and Hugh's case, unfortunately, typifies exactly what happens in the broader context. In this case, how long was the interrogation? So in this case, the interrogation um, occur- occurred over the course of several hours, around four or five hours. And there were some stops and starts. Um, but... The length of the interrogation is not necessarily um, a good indicator of whether an interrogation, or whether a confession was coerced or whether it was false, especially with young people. Their perception of time and the passage of time is very different from what it is among adults. And so that's one of the factors that we look at, but in evaluating whether a confession is false or not, but it's not the only factor and it's not at all determinative. And you said in this case that there were some factors in the record that indicated the falsity of the confession. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, so one of the things that we look for in a false confession case is what are called false fed facts. So these are facts that are presented in the interrogation room or by the police to the person who's under interrogation as being true, 
and the police believe that they're true at the time that they conduct the interrogation, and then later on through um, subsequent investigation, it turns out that, that they are false. So just as an example, one of the false-fed facts in this case had to do with the murder weapon. The police had found a knife under the bed in which Hugh's mom was found, and um, the knife was a jagged edge steak knife. And the theory at the time was that the person who had killed her had stabbed her with this knife and that the and then wiped it off and hid it under the bed. And so in the confession, that is one of the facts that they elicited and um, convinced Hugh to sign and to, to say. Later on, the autopsy established that, in fact, the murder weapon was a smooth-edged knife, not a jagged knife. And so that was just a false fact. And that's one of the indicators that this was a false confession. So that's just one example. The other thing that we found out, and this was actually another piece of newly discovered evidence, but we learned after about eight years of investigation that Hugh's case was not the only one in which the police had, the same officers had extracted a false confession from a teenager. There were three young men who were arrested in the Bronx just a couple of months before Hugh's mother was killed. And um, they were charged with another murder, another high-profile murder that had happened earlier in that year, in the year of 1989. And the police, the same officers used very similar interrogation tactics with two of these three young men and extracted confessions from them. And in the case of one of them, went to even greater lengths that they went through with Hugh. They actually took him in the middle of the night back to the murder scene and took him into the woods, and it was really kind of a horrifying story. The statements that these two people made to the police, and their names, by the way, were Dennis Koss and Calvin Parker. Calvin Parker tragically died in the intervening years, but Dennis Koss is alive and was ultimately willing to speak with us and to have his story brought to the public for after many, many years of living in anonymity and working and raising his family. And he's one of the heroes of this case. But in any event, we learned from Dennis Koss that when the police interrogated them, one of the things that they required Dennis and Calvin to say is that a third man, a guy named Robert Almonte, had been involved in this murder with them. And what ultimately came out is that Robert Almonte had been incarcerated in the Westchester County Jail at the time the murder had occurred. It was physically impossible for him to have been part of this murder. And yet the, the police and the prosecution um, proceeded, not just with this arrest, but they went to trial in this case, and ultimately, Koss and Parker were both acquitted after spending two years at Rikers. So another example of a false fed fact. And this all happened concurrently in time, I think, with the 
Central Park Five. Correct? It did, yes. So this was all happening eventually against the backdrop of the Central Park Five. And in fact, William Kunstler, who represented Hugh, also represented Yusuf Salam, who was one of the boys who was arrested and, and charged and convicted in the Central Park Five case. And so this was very much at the forefront of public consciousness. And I think that was another thing that 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 is another thing that breeds false confessions. So when a case gets media attention at the time it occurs, there's a lot of pressure on the police and on the prosecutors to arrest someone, to solve the case, to announce to the public that the public was safe. And so it's that rush to judgment that we saw in the Central Park Five case and that we really saw in Hughes' case as well. When when Hugh was arrested, the police did a perp walk, they announced it to the media, his name and his face and his story were splashed all over the news. And when a week later, it became very clear, for reasons we can get to, that it was not Hugh who committed this murder, they were already in too deep because the media had been swarming and the headlines blaring. And so they became committed to their theory of the case. They would not re-examine it, even though they had pushed so hard to get there in the first place. And there was no attorney present during this interrogation? There was not. And one of the things that the experts in this field have recommended for a long time and are continuing, especially now in the wake of all of these revealed false confessions, to advocate for is the presence of counsel in the interrogation room, especially with youth. I think that many of our listeners who have watched TV, which is probably most of them, have seen the Miranda rights, and you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney if you want one. Um, Why isn't that enough to protect um, people who are accused of crimes? That's a great question. Researchers have established that in order to really understand and process the Miranda warnings, you have to have at least an eighth grade reading level and comprehension level. Many of the youth who are arrested by the police and to whom the warnings are administered don't have that. And even if they do, they are in a situation where they're scared, where again, consistent with their development, they are ceding to authority, and the warnings don't really drill down enough to ensure that they fully understand what the implications of speaking to the police will be. The other thing is that there's a lot of um, subtle and not so subtle coercion that goes on in the interrogation room that sends the message to people that we're reading you these warnings, but you really don't have much of a choice. And then the third thing is that I actually think that the television and entertainment um, fictionalization of this process has had the negative effect of sending the message that this doesn't really mean anything. Because think about how it works on TV. They slap the handcuffs on somebody, they administer the warnings, they push them into the car, and then you never see what actually happens in the interrogation room and and, and the psychic deterioration that happens to somebody who is undergoing a police interrogation. So it's not enough. And and children and adolescents especially need not just to know that they can ask for a lawyer, which by the way, never means that you will get a lawyer in the interrogation room. It means that the police have to stop the interrogation, which they don't want to do. 
but they need somebody to actually give them advice about what the likely impact of speaking to the police will be and how this could have ripple effects throughout their lives and how their words can be manipulated and misunderstood and used and truly used against them what it means to have your words used against you not just in court but in the investigation process what has the supreme court said if anything about the constitutional right to counsel and juvenile suspects the supreme court has not gone beyond miranda with regard to the right to counsel per se but what it has done and i think that we're hopefully going to continue to see the development of of this focus on the nexus between adolescent development and um, criminal procedure. What it has done in a 2012 case called JDB versus North Carolina is to hold that the age of someone who's undergoing interrogation is a factor in considering whether that, that courts need to consider in determining whether someone is in custody and therefore must be administered the warnings. And so prior to JDB, the rational person test applied. So there's this fiction in law that those of us who are lawyers know that there's some rational person out there whose psychic makeup and whose understanding of the law should determine what the police and the courts need to do with regard to everybody, every one of us. And that rational person test has been proven time and time again with regard to anybody who is an individual not to really work all that well, not to reflect reality. What JDB did was to acknowledge that for children and adolescents at least, their age takes them outside of what that mythic rational person might perceive to be going on and lead them to feel that they're not free to leave when an adult might feel differently about the, about the same situation. So we've started to see a little bit of doctrinal development there, but I think there's still a long way to go. Now, for listeners who are interested in the whole issue of false confessions in the criminal justice system. Is there any source that you would recommend them to if they want to know more about this? Well, Making a Murderer, of course, on Netflix, which stars none other than our own Steve Drizzen, um, is, is a great starting place because that case involved Brendan Dassey, who was 16 years old and interrogated over the course of several days by police officers without having access to counsel. Um, Brendan had substantial learning disabilities. He really didn't understand what was going on and ultimately ended up confessing to a murder that most people believe he did not commit. And what making a murderer does is to really take a deep dive into police practices and the science of false confessions and also the um, the legal landscape in which people, and the, really the, the legal hell that such children often find themselves in for decades later, if not their entire lives. So that's a great start. Um, the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson 
details or chronicles several cases that he worked on, including cases of false confessions. So I think that's that's another great reading source and a wonderful book. It's a powerful and beautiful book. It is, yes. Now, you, you alluded earlier to certain evidence that was very critical to the exoneration. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. Mr. and Mrs. Burton Hughes' parents owned a three-story home in the Bronx that was a multi-family home. And so they, the Burton family lived in the middle story, and they had tenants on the other two floors. And the downstairs tenant was a man named Emanuel Green, who had moved into the house about three or four months before Mrs. Burton was murdered. This was 1989. It was before the internet. It was before we could easily do background checks on anybody coming into our homes. And so when Emanuel Green and his um, companion, Stacy Green, moved into the house, the family really knew nothing about them. On the day that Hugh's mom was murdered, her car also went missing. And the police put out an all-point bulletin on the car and directed police departments around the country to, to be on the lookout for these plates. And about a week after the murder, actually it was on the same day that Hugh was indicted and on the same day of his mom's funeral, Emmanuel Green was stopped at a red light in Mount Vernon, just over the border from the Bronx, driving Mrs. Burton's car. And so he was brought into the Mount Vernon police station. The two Bronx detectives who had interrogated and charged Hugh went up to Mount Vernon in the middle of the night, questioned Green. We actually just found out in the last year that they also questioned Stacy, and ultimately got him to sign a statement in which he said that he had helped Hugh after the fact make this murder look like a robbery. And in doing so, he evaded any further scrutiny by the legal system. He was charged only with being in possession of her car, even though he had just made this statement <coughs> acknowledging being an accessory after the fact. And what we learned much later, thanks to some detective work by clinic students, actually, was that Emmanuel Green had been convicted of both a knife point robbery in Times Square when he was 16 and a really brutal rape in Westchester at around the same time. And I should add that Hugh's mom was found nude from the waist down, and there's been some suspicion over the years that this was an attempted sexual assault. So not only was Emmanuel Green not charged with her homicide, but he was on parole at the time this murder occurred, and he was never charged with the parole violation or brought back into custody on those underlying charges. We are quite certain that Emmanuel Green killed Mrs. Burton the Bronx District Attorney's Office acknowledged the suspicion of him in the papers that they filed to vacate Hugh's conviction. Unfortunately, Emmanuel Green died 
before Hugh's case ever went to trial. So William Kunstler never had the opportunity to cross-examine him. He made these statements to the police that were clearly intended to deal with this very inconvenient fact of him being found in Mrs. Burton's car when Hugh's quote-unquote confession stated that he had given the car to a drug dealer to whom he owed money. Another complete falsity. Um, but because Green had died and because this case preceded a subsequent U.S. Supreme Court case that would have prevented this from happening, the prosecution was permitted to just read Green's statements into the record and play the video of his statement to the jury without affording Hugh the opportunity for confrontation. Had Green been alive, had the prosecution turned over what we know about his record to the defense, had William Kunstler had the opportunity to have aggressively cross-examined him, as we know Kunstler could do, I think the outcome of this case would have been very different. There's this whole uh, concept that I think some of our non-lawyer listeners may have heard on various police shows called Brady. Can you talk about Brady and how that sort of played out in this case and the file that you ultimately were able to obtain from the district attorney's office? Sure. So the Brady Doctrine comes from a case called Brady versus Maryland in which the Supreme Court held that prosecutor offices have the responsibility and the legal obligation to turn over to the defense any exculpatory information that is in their possession. And the doctrine has developed over the years to include requirements that they not turn a blind eye to potential exculpatory material and to develop what exculpatory information is and everything else. It's a constitutional right. It's a constitutional right. It is a The United States Constitution. The United States Constitution requires that exculpatory material be turned over to the defense. When we first started working on Hughes' case, we went to the Bronx District Attorney's Office and requested their files. And what they gave us was... Pretty flimsy. It had a couple of appellate briefs in it and some police reports. Not a whole lot more than that. We also, as I mentioned before, obtained the files from William Kunstler, which were much more extensive, had more police reports, had autopsy reports, had, had the typical things that you would expect to find in, in a defense murder file. After the Bronx Conviction Review Unit agreed to reinvestigate the case, we made another request for their files, and it took about a year. But ultimately, they called one day and said, we found a second file. And that second file contained hundreds of pages of documents, many of which we had before, but several of which we didn't. And among the documents that we didn't have was one critical 
piece of Brady material and other things as well. But the one that was so critical was this. When Hugh first came home and found his mom and called the police and the police came, they interviewed him. And they did what any, at that point, I think we would agree, did what any good police officer would do. They said to him, tell us about your day. Where were you today? Where did you, you go? When did you come home? And Hugh told them that he had left for school at around a quarter to eight in the morning or ten minutes to eight had said to his, said goodbye to his mother, that she had told him to have a nice day, and he went off and spent almost the whole day at school, although he did skip out on the last period. And the police, again, doing what good police officers probably should do, went out to verify all of this. So they went to his school, and they talked to his first period teacher who looked at her attendance book and said, nope, he wasn't in school for my class on that morning. And that is when the switch was pulled because what the police are looking for in these early moments of an investigation is anything that will point them in some direction. And now they think they had him in a lie. And so that's the moment at which he went from being a victim to being a suspect. And it was following that conversation that they went, they picked him up at his godmother's house, they drove him back to the precinct, they interrogated him, and they extracted this, this statement. A week later, again, coincidentally and ironically, on the same day that they found Emmanuel Green and the same day in the car and the same day that Hugh's mom was buried and the same day he was indicted, the teacher calls the detective and says, I made the most terrible mistake. This was the first day back after Christmas vacation. We went back to school on a Tuesday instead of a Monday. But when I was looking at my attendance book, I was looking at Monday when nobody was in school. And she said he was. He's marked present on that day. He was in class that day. As far as we can tell, that report, the report of that subsequent conversation with the teacher, was never turned over to the defense. The first time anybody saw it was when, almost 30 years later, we received this file from the Bronx District Attorney's Office. Oh my God. Uh, Hugh, how many years were you in prison? Um, 20. Okay, and you know, I, I can't imagine a greater nightmare than to be accused of killing your mother under very graphic circumstances and then to spend 20 years in prison. That must have been horrible. What did you do to keep up your spirits? Um, I had a great dad. Dad was great. Um, times where I didn't know if I could press on, I had him there. So, um, I, and, and they hadn't caught your mother's murder. You knew someone had killed your mother. I and I knew that someone was uh, still out there who was, who was responsible. It definitely wasn't me. Um, as I said, I had um, I had a great dad. Um, he didn't know much about um, anything legal, but um, he knew that we had to fight, and he was going to try to find some way and draw whatever resources he could to help with that. 
Um, the fact that um, I was able to make music um, that provided somewhat of a release and an outlet for me. You're a musician? Yes. What do you play? Piano. Wonderful. So um, that was one of the things over the years that um, kind of kept me going and it kind of kept us, it made me and my dad grow stronger because he was a sax player. So growing up, he would always try to encourage me to play an instrument, play an instrument. I didn't gravitate to it until all of this happened. So by the time that happened, he made sure that I had instruments and I was learning uh, music theory. Um, so we drew closer as a result of doing that. And by the time you look up, you know, you're noticing that years of they're passing, they're passing, they're passing. But that strength, uh, what kept me going was the fact that I knew I wasn't supposed to be there and that I had a, a great, great support group and, and that with my family and my father in particular. So, Can you talk about the grieving process for your mother? Um, that's interesting. I didn't get a chance to grieve until I came home. Um, 48 hours after she was killed, I was being hauled off to prison. So you don't get a chance to process that or to grieve properly. Um, you're trying to figure out what's going on in your life and what just happened. I was just, I was just going to school. You know, now I'm inside of a cell on Rikers Island um, for the most heinous and serious of crimes. Were you in an adult facility? Um, well, they had the, on Rikers Island, they had a place that was specifically for adolescents. However, the building was split between adolescents and adults. So the 16, 17, and 18-year-olds, uh, although you may not be in the same housing unit, you would be in the same building with 20-some-odd, 30-some-odd-year-old guys who were fighting their uh, cases. So, yeah. So um, I've seen a picture of you and Laura at the New York Marathon. Yeah. And so you're a runner. I'm a runner. Yeah. And were you a runner before uh, you went to prison? Or? No, no, no. I I was not athletic before. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't have an athletic bone in my body before I went in. Uh, however, being in there, just by default, a lot of guys will just start working out. Mm -hmm. And I did. I was no different. I was working out. Uh, everybody's in a weight pit and they're lifting weights and stuff like that. Um, but then I would notice that I would see the older guys running. And the older guys seemed to be in better shape than a lot of us who were younger and just into bodybuilding. So I decided I was, you know, let me try it, see what you can do. I couldn't get around the yard one time. So I said that this is something I <laughs> continue to keep doing. And um, I started talking to um, some of the runners that were in there. Uh, I started watching uh, um, running programs that I remember at the time they had a cable station that was just for running and I would watch it and as Laura had mentioned when they would have uh, marathons whether it was a half or a full marathon I would say okay well I'm going to go outside I'm going to run today uh, could never get to get close to completing it the New York Marathon yeah I never got close to completing it but I started to notice that as I got older uh, I got much much better with running um, and I think that's when I started to realize that there was something with the older guys and there was a, there was a connection there and I was, it was starting to make sense and I started to take running very seriously. And I would say to guys in there, like, you know, one day I'll get out of here and I'm going to run and go see the marathon. We would laugh 
but um, there was a part of me that says, I just want to do it just for the sake of doing it. And um, fast forward to 2016, um, she and I did it. And, Laura. Yeah, Laura and I did it. And we, like she, like she said, we started together. And somewhere in the shuffle, running, we got lost. And she, I don't know how it happened, she was ahead of me, running <laughs> in place by mile 18. And I mean, I, my legs were so cramped, I wanted to stop. But I said, no, we, got, we have to finish. And I seen her. And I said, well, how the hell did she get in front of me? You know, so let's, let's go. And she kind of held me up and said, we're going to finish it together. But what I found ironic about that is when I met Laura, I was in my 18th year of incarceration. And ironically, I met up with her again at the 18th mile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, that was something uh, for me. It was like, okay. I'm supposed to finish this, and we're supposed to finish it together. So. That's that's a wonderful story. What are you doing now? Um, actually, I teach uh, music at, over at the Fortune Society in Long Island City. Take young, young, young. Yeah, some of them are they're at risk. Um, some of them have cases. Mm -hmm. Some um, it's an alternative to to incarceration, and they have a lot of programs for for a lot of young guys and and girls as well. The music program being one of them. So there were some guys who I had known there for a good, num good number of years, and they said they might want to consider coming over to help out with the music program that they have there. And um, when I got there and I saw what it was, I said, you know what, I can let the I can leave the construction alone for now and just come here and uh, help out with these guys. So that's what I do. That must be very rewarding. It is because. Um, Again, it was something that many of us used when we were inside there to just escape the the reality or the pain of being inside there. Um, music was released for, for a lot of us. So for me, it's fulfilling because if I can do something or impart uh, some type of wisdom to guys who are at risk um, of going back to jail or going to jail for the first time, um, for me, I consider it a job well done uh, because a lot of us didn't have it when we were there so now what what uh, I'm sure you and Laura have had many um, conversations after you've been exonerated but yeah. what do you have to say here on this podcast to Laura Cohen and the Rutgers Law Clinic and all the other wonderful attorneys who work mm -hmm. on the case Laura as well as this clinic and the law students were literally uh, lifesavers. They, they restored a hope that I didn't know if I still had, you know, you, you, you press on because it's what you do. But seeing every class of student that comes in with a fresh pair of eyes and new ideas about how they can look at something, it, it motivated me. Um, and sometimes when their classes were over and we didn't have uh, an exoneration, they would actually feel like they let me down or that they didn't fully complete their job. And I would always try to ensure them that they did a phenomenal job because that one piece of evidence brought us one step closer. Um, something that they may have thought was insignificant became significant somewhere down the line, but it was something that they found so they have literally become like lifesavers to me, and this is why I've made sure that I stayed in contact with a lot of them. Um, some have gone into private practice, some work in you know, courts, and it's great. Um, 
So, yeah, lifesavers. Have you thought about law school yourself? <laughs> we were just having that conversation before we came down. I told mm -hmm. her, I said, you know, um, soon I want to, because I'm into music, and I see so many horror stories of young entertainers who, um, by five, six years in the business, they're broke, and they have nothing. I'm saying, I think I might want to study entertainment law. So we'll see what happens. Well, Rutgers Law has a great entertainment <laughs> law offering. Just very, very quickly, Laura, do you want to talk about some of the other projects that you have going on? Sure. So, um, as I mentioned before, the clinic does a wide range of work, and a lot of our energy and time over the last decade has been devoted not just to innocence work, but also to work on behalf of incarcerated youth in New Jersey. We have a project, the Adolescent Representation Project, that has, at this point, provided legal representation to over 600 incarcerated youth. We work with them while they're inside on a whole range of issues, including conditions and parole and immigration and child custody and visitation. And that work has really spawned a lot of policy work. And so at the moment, um, my wonderful clinical fellow, Alana Wolf, and I are working with several kids who are caught up in the immigration mess that our country is currently experiencing. They're facing deportation when they're released from custody, and we're trying to not just provide representation to them through that process, but also negotiate with the state attorney general's office around um, questions relating to their interactions with the federal immigration authorities. And we are working on legislation that would change the system of juvenile parole. And I'm on the governor's task force that is examining everything about the youth justice system and making recommendations for systemic change. So it's a busy time in that field as well. That's, that's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you both. Um, Hugh, that's uh, a nightmare story that turned out really well. Um, and so it's really an honor for me to have you here thank with you. us. And I'm very uh, proud that our students and our faculty um, had the opportunity to serve you in the finest traditions of the profession. So thank you very much and best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is a second home. <laughs> <laughs> second You're always welcome here. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School, offering a world-class, diverse faculty of passionate teachers and scholars and an alumni network more than 20,000 members strong around the globe. Rutgers Law has an extensive reach in the legal community. Learn more about our close-knit law school communities in Camden and Newark by visiting law.rutgers.edu.